welcome to another episode of Captain Hunter's Podcast, the podcast that is dedicated to bridging the divide between the police and the communities that they serve. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Thank you for the love and the support and for what you're doing to make this podcast go and to grow. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it. Remember that you can help support the podcast through PayPal, Cash App, and Venmo. Make sure that you head over to those platforms. Give a, you know a dollar an episode, five dollars an episode, two dollars an episode. I know I'm going up and down, right? You're not supposed to do that. So whatever you can do in order to help support the podcast and make sure that, just, that it is going and growing. Fifty dollars for the year, hundred dollars for the year, whatever you can do, I really, really would appreciate it. Um, make sure that you are supporting the podcast in other ways, as far as sharing, rating, and subscribing. When you hit that thumbs but thumbs up button, it gives uh, the the um, it gives the algorithms the boost that it needs in order for us to be found quicker. Uh, so hit that uh, five stars, hit that thumbs up button, do everything you can to make sure that this podcast is going and growing and we're getting the message and the word out there. Um, make sure that you are uh, subscribing to these episodes and that you are sharing these episodes. Most important, probably of all, is sharing these episodes and, uh, and make sure that everyone that in your circle is getting these episodes, whether it's your mama, whether it's that person that you pull up alongside of in traffic, if they can understand you with your mask on, if you're driving with your mask on, if you're one of those people that drives with your mask on and all that. So just, you know, yell out the window, hey, I'm listening to Captain Hunter's podcast and then pull off or whatever. So um and so that's that's really kind of it uh as far as the announcement rate subscribe share and uh, support the podcast and make sure that this podcast is going and growing i really really appreciate the love and support the podcast is is larger than it was you know a year ago this time and i really appreciate it keep it keep it coming and really really appreciate the love and support uh, so for today's episode, we have Ms. Joanne Morgan, PhD. She is the Professor Emeritus of African American Studies and Art History at Western Illinois University. She is the author of Black Arts Movement and the Black Panther Party in American Visual Culture that was released in 2019. Dr. Morgan also authored Uncle Tom's Cabin as Visual Culture, winner of the prestigious Seaborg Award for Civil War Scholarship in 2008. Knowledgeable lady, Professor Emeritus of of african-american studies her history and her um her uh expertise is in art history so uh, really really great great conversation we had with her so i really appreciate her coming on the show and so without further ado ladies and gentlemen we're going to jump right into the episode ending off black history month talking about the black panthers uh talking about the aesthetics of, of black persons uh black culture black history uh, and what it has meant through the years. Uh, we went from the Sambo and from the from the Aunt Jemima up until today uh, where we have Barack Obama and positive images of uh, African-Americans all over uh, the TV screen. And I, for one, am absolutely ecstatic about that and I appreciate it greatly. So we've made a lot of strides. So people who are out there saying we haven't made any strides and everything is as bad as it was, and th 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 come on now, that's just not the truth. It's just not the truth. So. Here we go, Miss uh, jo Dr. Joanne Morgan. Uh, so thank you so much to uh, Joanne Morgan for coming on Captain Hunter's podcast. I really, really appreciate you coming on. Pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Um, so I did read your bio. Uh, to to uh, individuals out there, you know, I do a pre-recording to this. Um, but if you would just uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, please. 
Well, um, I, I've had a long career of, it, related to the arts mainly. I, I was a studio artist and I went back to school and got a degree in art history and I've been teaching in universities or, um, and a college for uh, over 20 years. And my background was in rep my, my interest, my dissertation interest was in the representation of African-American women in popular culture and fine art in the 19th century. And so that evolved over the years. And I, I really was straining at the bit to, to continue teaching just art history. I became very interested in all aspects of black culture, not just representation of women. And in 2007, I had the opportunity to change jobs and uh, go to a university that had an African-American studies department. And I asked if I couldn't be assigned to that department. And from there, I developed my teaching and research interests broader than just the visual arts. And it was really through teaching um, black culture to just Broad, broader than that, but the essence of Black history and culture, that this project that I um, I recently completed a book on the Black Arts Movement and the Black Panther Party in American visual culture uh, evolved, um, the, preparing things to teach to, to the classes and mainly um, feeling their response, feeling their interest. And so it's 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 was sort of a collaborative process of my own research and the collaboration of having this wonderful continuous audience of young people to try the material out on. So, and so you've always been interested in the arts, or are you are you an artist? Can you draw? I was a can you paint? Studio or? artist, yes, I, since little. Okay. But um, and I did have a. a a, a good career ex exhibiting. I, I still actually have work in a gallery in Los Angeles. And I um, I am now a professor emeritus at, for the last year. And I've gone back to doing visual art. And I find that I, I sent you a couple of pictures, just, you know, I, I know we probably won't talk about them, but it's it's been really interesting how the research work, uh, particularly relative to the Black Power Movement is now informing the artwork I'm doing. So I've kind of gone back to visual art, becoming an artist again, new medium. And, uh, and yet I take with me all of those years of research and just things I thought about as I was working through the, uh, um, presenting, uh, presenting a book on, on the Black Arts Movement. So, Oh, very good. Uh, we can certainly talk about your paintings. Uh, those are your, that's your work, right? I mean, I, I noticed that uh, a few of them, and I'm going to put them up on my on my Facebook page so people can can get an idea what we're talking about here. Uh, th those are your works, correct? Yeah, they're not, they're, uh, I know that in images you can't tell what they're made of, but they're really not paintings, but they're supposed to read like, like a picture. I mean, they're like a composition, but they're sewn fabric. So oh, okay. They're kind of like quilts. Oh, okay. my, that, that's got to be very time consuming to put those quilts it together. It is. <laughs> I started this last March. Okay. When we all went into lockdown. <laughs> 
So I wanted something that was time intensive because I had lots of it and I, I really wasn't ready. I don't know if I ever want to write another book. It takes forever. Yeah. And so it evolved from, from the conditions and, and the themes of the work deal with things that have happened this past year, which um, I, I, I like the medium, which you think of as something kind of charming and decorative and put it on your bed. But I like the idea that you have that comforting medium and then say something a little more profound, a little more significant. So actually I'm, I'm looking through the screen over my right shoulder is a, is a, a work called um, Memorial for Brianna Taylor. Mm. And uh, you can probably see it, but you do have a slide. And so it's, it's a tribute to her, but um, she's the, the figures I uh, are supposed to be reassuring in some way. All, they're all, mostly all female and they're supposed to have this feeling of reassurance to them. So um, I don't know, it's kind of a, she's, it's kind of, it's not a portrait per se. It's a, it's a comforting figure. I know that's <laughs> kind of vague, or, or not vague, but um, doesn't exactly come together significantly. But it is a, it's a figure, you know, in, in a gesture of hands up, don't shoot, uh, reference to the uh, Pan-African flag connection. She's a young woman dressed in cutoffs, uh, a flight of bird over, birds overhead, she had a tattoo on her shoulder that had this flight of birds and a statement, sometimes you gotta fall before you can fly. And I was just really touched by her, her story, you know, her, her life thus far. And, and I, ha I have a daughter, so I think she especially resonated with me. So I wanted to do a kind of tribute that was hopeful and maybe comforting, <laughs> as odd as it is. Mm. Now is that that's something you just finished, and is that going to you're going to try to get that into to museums or to art galleries or 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 whatever? I've um, I, no, I I did I was hesitant to start showing work until I had a real solid body of work and a sense of where I was going, and so I still I I have shown uh, that piece and another one that's a memorial. This one you'll see on a on a slide uh, of a, a similar young woman with her hand in a black power gesture. There's a flag in it and candles. And the title of it is Pledge of Allegiance Memorial for John Lewis, something else that happens throughout the year. Now, the two of them did get accepted into a jury show in Raleigh, North Carolina. And that was about, I don't know, two months ago, maybe November. And I have another one set to go to a gallery show, a group show in, in Norfolk, Virginia. So I'm just, you know, little by little, I'm putting them out there. Uh, very good. I, I, I got to admit, I'm, I'm not too much into the arts. I actually had some artistic talent as a, as a well, I probably still have it as a, as a kid, but I never really developed it. It was just, uh, I was one of those kids where they got pulled out of class and was was told to draw on the walls and, you know, in the, in the hall, not on the walls, but on the whatever those are called, you know, we had the 
the frames and you know people would put different pictures up in the hallways in the class and i was always getting called out to do that and after a while i started hating it hating it oh you were the go get somebody to decorate the hall exactly exactly and then uh oh, and then, i know the feeling and then my mother would always have me do my brother's projects and stuff like i listen i mean that's so that's why i just i just said you know i'm not going to do this anymore but now i kind of regret it because i probably let a little bit of talent go go by the wayside so, Never played as I am testament. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it started uh, 47, 48 years old. I should start doing that again. <laughs> so uh, I don't think people are going to have me drawn on the walls in, in, uh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so you got, uh, I, I reached out to you because of your, uh, of your work with the Black Panthers. And if you could just kind of walk us through that, the, the evolution of your thought process, you did write a book. So why don't we start there? Tell us about the book that you wrote. <laughs> okay, I will put this up for for people. I'll, I'll, I'll put it on the screen so people can can yeah, uh, yeah. Happy, happy to share it. Um, I think I'll I'll go back to where I left off with the students um, because um, I was um, I taught classes that were somewhat African American studies oriented as an art historian. I did a seminar called the visual aesthetics of hip hop, for instance. And, okay. I, and I'd been kind of uh, trying out some ideas, but here I was in a new job. It was at Western Illinois University, full-time African-American studies. And there were already courses on the books. Um, so I, uh, you know, I did, I do actually have a background in theater history as well. And I, and I was teaching film. So as far as African-American culture, art, film, literature as well <laughs> and theater. So I was pretty, pretty ready to go, but still, you know, the introduction classes, the like freshman classes, there was one called famous people of African descent already there. So I said, all right, I'll take on this one. You know, you can kind of make it of it as you will. And I did. Um, so it was, it was good because it's kind of like a people magazine, if you will, of introduction to, to, to the topic. But students responded really well to it. And I started bringing in um, weekly topics uh, relative to my own interests. And so I, I was sharing with them things about black power, not just civil rights or sports or writers. We did those, but I brought in the things I, that they didn't tend to know, even though um, this is in Western Illinois. So most of my students, most of the students came from Chicago. It was a, there's a train that goes from Chicago to Macomb, Illinois, and they would commute in, or not commute actually, they would stay. But um, so I, I had a lot of uh, African-American students with with um, urban background, Chicago. And it, it just really, I was, I love teaching um, particularly uh, about the Black Panthers because they really liked it. You know, they, they really like them, they really respond. But what I learned being an art historian, I present slideshows, you know, picture shows. Uh, it, um, how much I could teach really without even talking much. You know, I just put up a picture, um, 
showed the Panthers at Sacramento, and I've, I've sent you a couple. Mm -hmm. and, and what all is in the picture is half of what I had to present. And my background is in art history. I had written an earlier book. I'll show you that one. Uncle Tom's Cabin is Visual Culture, where I looked at every kind of representation of Uncle Tom and people from the mid-19th century novel. And it took me in all kinds of new directions. And particularly interesting was the popular culture. So I, I brought that same, if you will, method, the same method of research to studying the Black Panthers. Everyone's seen that poster of Huey P. Newton fan back chair, he's got a spear and a, a rifle. Mm -hmm. There's his leather jacket, got the beret on it. Uh, and so just, this is an example. I mean, that's something everyone knows, but you just take that picture without even, you know, knowing a whole lot and you read the picture. Well, what's in the picture? Why is it there? And it's it, it, it sort of tells its own story, but then my job as, as a researcher then is to learn more about the picture and what it meant and who was there and where did it go and who carried it and what, what demonstration, where was it reproduced? Um, and then it becomes sort of, uh, sort of like being a, de de excuse me for the analogy, but a kind of scholarly detective seeking out the meaning of things. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's where it started. Um, looking for that picture in demonstrations, I learned, you know, the Panthers were, maybe they weren't the first, but they certainly uh, were the most assertive in using images, photographs in their demonstrations. And as I studied more and more, I, you know, I, 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 um, I met Emory Douglas, he's the artist, the visual artist most associated with the Panthers because he did the, their newspaper and talked to him and studied his work and what did it mean? And um, just kind of like uncovering things. Some of it everyone knows, but there's just a lot people didn't. I would say uh, one thing that maybe surprised me that people don't know is you think, you know, the uh, Panther Eldridge Cleaver, right? You think of, he, and he's a very, um, uh, well, he was a writer. He was, you know, excellent with words and excellent as a public speaker, uh, uh, and, and rather forceful, and and a very strong presence, a very influential presence within the Panthers. But I hadn't really known how uh, instrumental he was in putting putting forward the Panthers' visual identity in using, uh, I don't know, let's see what, like he was the one who set up that famous photo and had ideas about what's in it, right? Everyone kind of, you know, the, the uniform, but the African-esque stuff that's in it, you know, Panthers weren't necessarily, um, what, cultural nationalists. So they, they didn't wear dashikis, you know, that, yeah, 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 yeah. that them. But Cleaver knew, well, we put a couple shields and they had a zebra rug and it'll have a wide appeal within the community. 
So just everywhere I looked, I keep finding how a lot of this visual communication is there's cleaver behind it. Um, using the posters, the big blow up posters, he's his idea, putting people on buttons, his idea. And now, is, is all that stuff deliberate? I mean, maybe I just I, maybe I just don't have an eye for that. But are, are they saying this is exactly what we want to do? As yeah. far as like you mentioned, the uh, um, not the cultural, um, you know, they, they they did something different as far as not wearing dashikis, even though they had still had the black power. So it was their intention to wear these berets and in, in all black and all that. And yes, they were deliberately yes. doing that. Okay. Yes, and every everything um, like in working on it, you know, I read a lot, a lot of books by people that were involved and they would make reference to how they got their black leather jacket and what it meant. So, you know, it wasn't just, hey, that looks cool. The black, it did, but it had a kind of different appeal. Uh, the beret, there was a history. Uh, Robert F. Williams had worn a beret in Cuba. Um, I think the French, some connection with like the something French, to do with uh, Algeria, I believe, resistance soldiers. But mainly it was the Cuban connection, Che, um, Che Guevara. And so, you know, it was a really solid revolutionary hat. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just it looked cool. It was the revolutionary idea. Mm -hmm. But no, they're really conscious of, of all of that. And uh, I mean, you would expect they would be. It's just... Um, it, it's nice to, it, you know, I, I, it was, I enjoyed bringing it all, weaving it all together and, 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 and staking a, a claim on, on things that we kind of know, but aren't always what we think we know. Now, your, your work as far as the representation of women, the Panthers, Uncle Tom's Cabin, where, do, where does that, I mean, where does that come from? You, I mean, you're, you're saying that, uh, let's start with the women. Um, you looked at how, I assume you looked at how women were represented, particularly black women, in history, probably with the, with the mammies, the Aunt Jemimas. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so can you talk us, take us through a little bit of that? That was in grad school. And uh, so that's real early when I'm taking seminars and I knew I, I liked American art, that's about, you know, and I, and I was open, but I just kept bumping into questions of, uh, I'd read what someone had written for, uh, one example that comes to mind, there's a Winslow Homer painting called uh, A Visit from the Old Mistress. He did it during the during reconstruction. And it's this pro, uh, in profile, a white woman, and in pro, not more three quarter, a group of three black women. And it's set in a cabin. And it's, scholars were always writing about how, oh, I don't know. How he, he, how, I, they were always seeing it as a really positive image and how Homer had done this really positive image of black women. And, and the two women, you know, somehow there was, something sympathetic, sympathetic maybe is a word that they used a lot. And I just, I, I'd look at this thing and, I, and I'd, it's a, this painting, excuse me, <laughs> Homer, Homer is a god to art historians. Um, and it just didn't look sympathetic. It just didn't sit with me what people were saying because it, 
it really wasn't that flattering of the black women. And they were uh, looked at as, as 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 you know pieces of meat for these for these men, right? I mean, that, that's essentially what. Well, this was a bigger woman, and even it had husky arms, and the arms were really long. Okay. It, okay. I haven't seen this painting, so I, I don't know. It's a visit from the old mistress. I now, have to look at that. <laughs> now it isn't negative because she's a big woman, or that, or that she's in a cabin. That's, but just the way it, she's postured, in contrast with the white woman who's presented in this as as the ideal. Mm. Anyway, that that's the kind of thing that just it just didn't I didn't I didn't buy it. So when you start not buying something or having questions, then you want to go deeper and figure it out. And as I did, I also was, I've always liked pop culture. And, you know, what about the Mammy? Where did that come from? And Shemite, that was my first published piece was an article. <laughs> I called um, it Mammy the Huckster, selling the old South for the new century. About mm. the no nostalgia we had. And that was way back in 1995. Mm. So it wasn't, often that then that a art historian dissertation included old trade cards of mammies and uncle toms <laughs> i can <laughs> imagine there are not a lot of those <laughs> alongside winslow homer's revered paintings yeah. so, but it it came together for me and there were and uh, then it's the 19th century, just about all the representation was by white artists I'm trying to think Homer, uh, not Homer, um, um, Tanner, when, uh, Henry Osawa Tanner was one African-American artist that I could uh, also work with. And um, he didn't do too many women, but for the most part, I, it was seeing black people through 19th century white people eyes. Mm. So, yeah. So, can you talk a little bit about that experience as as you're entering into this into this space where people are talking about um, what what is aesthetic, what is beautiful, what is art, what is what is the standard that we should be living up to, even the European beauty standard, right? And then here you come and other people, as you mentioned, Tanner and and others, you know, um, and saying no, this is not beautiful, or here's another. Uh, way of thinking about beauty is that which which road did you take saying that this is not beautiful or or that there's here's another something else that's beautiful as an african-american um um let me think um when you're new to something and uh, I, I was a slightly older student because i'd been out for a while but i was new to art history and my student colleagues they knew the jargon and they could, they used all these words I didn't understand in seminars. Um, so I, I did feel behind. And it was also really clear to me because I, I didn't like come straight through. I had this break that there's a kind of, I called it, I called it guardians at the gate that art, art is one, historically art has been something that solidifies perceptions and uh, keeps keeps the keeps things status quo to a degree, but you know certain people their accept their work is accepted, and 
it's and, and for that reason, fine art painting is mostly what at the time everyone looked at. But to look at, there were lots of trade cards, mind you, and and product labels. And Aunt Jemima herself started as a product label. But to bring in these, it really does already question. Um, the canon art historians would call it like, what is, what are we supposed to look at? What, what is the rule? What are the rules? So I didn't really weigh on, in on pretty standards of beauty. I just kind of go, go dive in and say what's there without weighing in at, at all. I, I wish I could come up with a, an example other than that. Well, that, um, that particular painting I'm referring to, later I learned had been, it was almost exactly like an illustration in Uncle Tom's Cabin in, of 1853. That's, that's actually the second, the, its second edition. And there it was. So it was just really taboo for me to have said it looks like Winslow Homer, this revered fine artist, um, might have been influenced by this lowly drawing in a book. <laughs> and actually both artists were from the same place. Um, the other thing I, from the early research, people wanted Homer to be sympathetic. They wanted the North to be the good guy. Right, it, we're, we're dealing with the Civil War and 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 aftermath, and so nobody wants to see Homer as equally a white supremacist. <laughs> That's a today term, but in any way complicit with broader, you know, issues of limitations. So. I read it, and I, I didn't really read the beauty so much as read it as in in place. You know, here's these African American people, in, in and he does a painting in 1876. So they're still in the cabin, right? We've had this war. There's there's emancipation, but reassuring to the northern viewer of the painting. Everybody's still in place. We're still going to have labor in the South, bringing the goods for the manufacturers in the North. So that was the maybe the most radical thing I got from it, rather than questioning ideals of, of, of beauty, is this complicitness of the Northerner with the South, especially from Reconstruction on. Oh, and that, I just want to be clear that you're talking about you're talking about Uncle Tom's Cabin. That was this, that was the central theme that you're getting. Is that what you're saying? No, that was the first book, and I did look at this at Winslow Homer, the fine artist. Okay, Winslow Homer. Winslow Homer was saying right. These are I think what you're saying is these were people of their time saying this is exactly this is, yes right right exactly. right right. We would yes, you're right. We would call them white supremacists today, but they yeah, were people exactly of his time. <laughs> time, and and that's the point. So I didn't you know. It's important to not be judgmental ever, right? Then, then, then you sort of, you, it's just not appropriate. You're you're 
digging in and presenting what you see. You do you do have an opinion, but like Homer was bad. He was just as racist. No, that wouldn't work. You know, he he for he was a man of his time, and he may have thought it was sympathetic. Who knows why he did it? However. People that bought his work were rich Northerners that were in manufacturing and were definitely dependent on a, a Southern labor force. Yeah, I think, and I think that that's the problem that we have in this country today with looking at at the past, whether it's artists, the founding fathers, um, and that's a lot of, in, in, and we as African Americans have an issue with this, but, the, but they were people in their time doing what they had to do in order to, um, keep the right. economy going and keep, you know, and they, they thought they would, that was right. Now we certainly detest it. And I certainly don't want to be seen as an apologist for, for that type of thinking, because, you know, if I'm there, I'm rebelling and running away and <laughs> from slavery and all that kind of stuff too, you know, because it, yeah. certainly you know, as we look back, we know it was, it was wrong then. We know it's, we know it's wrong today. Um, so what were you trying to, to accomplish with, with the Panther book? Uh, trying to uh, get what was your what was your theme in thesis of, of writing the book? Um, well, I started actually the uh, the poster of Huey P. Newton, and I have sent you a photograph, the original photograph. I found it in Stanford Library collection that they took that became that poster. And I started with that. What did they look like? Why did they choose that? And um, that that the why the leather jacket what is the you know what is their foundational principles the the 10 point platform and the more i worked the more i realized well i i need to do also this another surprise although it wasn't because i actually did go to school in oakland berkeley way back is the uh the co collaboration between the black panthers and events in the black community with students and anti-war activists in Berkeley. They were really very tight. And I, um, I think um, that my chapter, I, there's a chapter on four major figures. Um, Huey Newton, that I look at the poster and his background and, and um, his influence. Eldridge Cleaver chapter, is about him working with the Peace and Freedom Party, how I call it his visual acumen, how, how influential his use of pictures were. And then a chapter on Emory Douglas, who was the Black Panther artist. And then last, I, I, a chapter on picturing the female revolutionary that, that I mostly look at, well, I look at Angela Davis and Kathleen Cleaver. And that's where my research was formatively the when the the angela davis chapter was last it it was slightly out of the chronology i think is why that happened but in studying emory douglas people i would read and uh, he would be referred to uh, emory douglas of the black arts movement and this phrase kept coming up over and over and i hadn't really thought a lot about it so i realized gosh i better find out what the black arts movement is and so the the first four chapters deal with the Black Arts Movement, how it how it happened. Um, back to New York, it's all about art. 
um, let's see, uh, the group called Spiral in New York, all about art, but always referencing um, Panther activities when I could. And, and that's the first three chapters, The Wall of Respect in Chicago, I, I write about the group called Afrocobra, the artists that were also active in Chicago. And then chapter four was kind of interesting because it was a later chapter too. I, I pretty much researched all the Panther um, history. And I thought, well, what about artists in like the neighborhood? And, and there was an art school there. It's actually the art school I went to. Well, were there any students there that did art? And then I looked at closely at their art. And um, it was pretty interesting. They, I, there's, and I've sent you along the screen print that one of the artists did a work, he called it Untitled, which was kind of common for artists. They don't want to really give away too much. You're supposed to figure it out. <laughs> They're supposed to say it with the image. Again, this, this, this gesture, um, hands up, don't shoot, that we now know so well. Mm. Uh, it's a figure of a young man like this slightly to the side. And I, it just resonated. Here's a picture from 1968, and it looks like today. Well, um, there were, there, there was a very well-known police shooting of a young panther in April of that year. And it is my contention this artist was responding to that activity, the death of the young panther. Um, let me, um, and so that led me into you know, making that connection. And I thought it, I, the artist is no longer living and there, I couldn't find anything he wrote except for one statement where he said, people call my work social realism, oh no, let's see, social protest. If I would call my work anything, I would say it's social reality. So that kind of resonated too. So you talked in the bio, uh, I believe about your um, time at uh, Western Illinois there, you sent me something that, that I did not know. I knew about the Harlem Renaissance, but there were two other type of renaissances. And so for us who are not history buffs or art Buffs. Can you could you talk a little bit about those other two? I think one was you know obviously the Harlem Renaissance from the 1920s. Something happened in the 1940s, and then then again, I think you just alluded to the 1960s, another type of Renaissance. People refer to the Chicago Renaissance. Okay. Um, because I was looking at the Panthers, my work is was concentrated on uh, Bay Area, but there's also it's not a renaissance, but a flowering, call it, of art relative to the black power movement or it's responding to contemporary themes of black power in Los Angeles. Los Angeles artists are really well known and Chicago artists have recently become a, a lot better known. The Chicago Renaissance though precedes the 60s even and we have, let's see, um, Archibald Motley, for instance, was in Chicago. Um, in the 50s, um, Richard Hunt, the sculptor from Chicago. So Chicago 
which is the site of Art Institute of Chicago and um, a couple of other um, Chicago Technical College, their uh, uh, Institute of Technology, I forget offhand their names, but there's a, there's several, um, Columbia College, several schools there. So it too has a long, rich artistic tradition. Now I didn't go into that long tradition in this because I my, my dates were the 60s, but I looked rather in depth at a group of artists that called themselves Afro-Cobra. And, mm -hmm. and they are um, Wadsworth Gerald, his wife, Jay Gerald, um, Nelson Stevens, I'll forget some, Barbara Jones Hogo, um, Carolyn Lawrence. Anyway, it, they're, they're all in chapter three. And what interested me about them, this is at the time of, you know, the Black Panthers are active in Oakland. And they, some, it, uh, they did tributes, uh, a couple of, of uh, paintings of Black Panthers, Newton and Seal. Um, Wadsworth Gerald did two really famous portraits, one of Malcolm X, one of Angela Davis. What interested me about them uh, uh, most of all was, that, now back to your question about art history and um, kind of like how do you navigate art history and, and have it make meaning for you or, or for someone other than, you know, re repeating the tradition. Um, art history favors European art. You know, you go to right. school and they'll teach you how to do a European style drawing. They might teach you perspective. You might learn painting. Um, so as an, for artists in the, this, the Black Power era, how do you get, how do you shake that? You know, how do you, and make, bringing in African imagery, painting um, African sculpture, you know, that's a lot of artists do that. They, they um, Lois Melloy-Jones did uh, the work with uh, African sculpture in it. Um, Palmer Hayden, I think, during the Harlem Renaissance. So that's been done, and that's one way. But they just sat down and said, let's just start over. Let's, and, and they step by step, they regularly met and figured out how to make art that wasn't European tradition. And so they chose colors that they thought were like, reflected the people on the street. Um, they uh, used letters. Uh, Wadsworth Gerald uses the letter B and black is beautiful. And he put words of how uh, uh, things Mark Malcolm X had said. And you look at their work and it's still, you can see, still see represent, representation in it, but it's just assertively brighter, and pointedly um, message-oriented message to a message that would have been something they would, would want to say. And, um, and from all of the artists I studied, I, I really take uh, direction now from, from them when I started back. Not that I have a goal of what I want, but no, don't, don't let the influences be there 
choose and make it what you want to say. Um, I want to talk to you about the resistance that that if there was was any from academia when people started introducing this type of uh, stuff, whether it's in the 1920s, 40s or, or, or 60s or even today resistance to as you mentioned that people when you go into school that they're going to teach you perspective uh how to draw or perform your art through a european standard has there been any resistance to introducing whether it's african art or maybe south american art or, or asian art has there been any uh, resistance to that you know this isn't real art it, it's subpar con concerning the standard is How's that been? That's an interesting question. Uh, um, now, I'm in school as an art historian in the 90s. And the 90s is, the, it's a decade where, I don't know, it seemed like every other conference I went to was, the theme was race, class, and gender. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is it was um, with my interest in pop culture and off the beaten trail stuff. It was really great because people were willing to, you know, fund me or you know, I got some monies that were available because it seemed new and of the time. Um, the and then the problem is even with. You know, people want to open up their curriculum and have they non-Western already there as a judgment in the statement, as if right, right. It's, it's racist in the statement. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Bring in non-Western, right. um, <laughs> but there weren't always. You know, there weren't really ready-to-go textbooks like there were for all the European stuff and. Um, it it was always it was a challenge. I I, I, I don't know that there was resistance. The re, the resistance is kind of inherent in the system. That these are already the courses being taught, and these are the scholars that have written, and and then this is the new stuff. Well, okay, you do it if you can do it. So uh, the bigger schools like the like UCLA had. Um, Someone that did Indian art, someone that did ch the Chinese, they, they had trouble filling, but they get a, a guest person. Uh, and they had someone in African art. So th the large schools that, that grant PhDs often had that, but just getting it in the curriculum to like go out and teach somewhere, they people try. They just don't have a feel for it, I, I, I think. Again, I think that this goes back to that conservatism that we talked about, where uh, whether we're talking about, you know, the people of their time, you know, the, all those uh, persons, you know, the Winslow Homers of his time, I would even consider, you know, Mark Twain, all those people that just, you know, this is uh, what it was. Um, and so the people today in the 1990s, when you're back in school, were saying, well, this is just the way that this is, this is what it is, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, so we ought to take that for what it is. And I think that the uh, people are continuing to push forward. Fortunately, you and other persons are continuing to push forward and saying, you know, there's another perspective. Uh, a certain standard of beauty is not the only standard of beauty or music or whatever. Um, have you watched, uh, speaking of art and art history and all that, have you watched the, the movie Judas in the... Uh, I loved it. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, it's, uh, we just watched it and I, it's just 
on my mind. I keep thinking of things they did right and things I might have liked more of. How did you respond to it? Uh, I enjoyed it. I, I was uh, on a scale of one to 10, I was probably like a six uh, as far as knowledge about uh, Fred Hampton. I wish I knew more. Of course, you know, he died at 21. So well, I shouldn't say died, he was murdered at 21. So um, uh, I, I am interested to know what you, what you thought uh, they needed more of. I would have liked a little more of his his own background. I liked yeah. I liked how they showed him, I loved how they showed his relationship with um, what, Deborah Jackson was that she changed her name his wife his woman uh, and you know that he was shy with her and just that we, I thought it gave a really nice portrait of who he probably was it, did, it didn't relate it, it wasn't Hollywood you know. You saw him out there speaking, but and and you know, it, but they didn't amp it up. They just showed him as a really dynamic speaker. I loved it before I saw it, just because. Thank goodness. I mean, that because people don't know about him, you know. And I think he's really important because because it's well, to my mind, it's it's a recurring problem, and um. This is how I see it, and I, I think it it recur it began or it you know it's recurring. But I, I would put Paul Robeson in this category. Um, definitely the Panthers in Oakland, uh, and I don't know who else. But when when some Mal Malcolm X wasn't really aligning with white people. Now here's where I I see it is the rub that, that it seems like the powerful. Right, they want to keep a status quo, but whenever like the oppressed, be they white, be they the Puerto Rican young lords, be they the Black Panthers, whenever they align, then the powerful get really fearful. Mm. And I think um, Paul Robeson was, you know, he was active in in labor struggles with white laborers. And that was way back, and what were those dates? But um, he went to, he, he wouldn't renounce the Soviet Union. But I, you know, I think it, it, it's, it was the fear of someone strong, inner African American interacting with Euro American and forming an alliance. And the Panthers did that in Oakland, especially through Eldridge Cleaver. So that's my thought. And that I think is why Fred Hampton was so dangerous to the powerful because he had, and, and the kind of, I don't know, if, I, I don't know how it went down in history, his aligning with the uh, Chicago, call them the crowns. And I've never heard of them, but I haven't really studied Africa, um, Chicago street gangs. <laughs> I do know though that, there were there was a truce, um, and he he was a, a force of peace within the community, and then he was also appealing to the, the they call them the patriots, um, and that's a white group. I, I don't know what if they protested or exactly who they were, but so um, the other thing that I think people don't know is. We hear about it. They, the Panthers called them the uh, 
agent provocateur that the FBI plant. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I've read a lot about uh, that. A, a lot, I've, no, I haven't read a lot. I'll, I'll just say references to provocateurs, um, the plants, um, come up quite a bit. But there's never been in anything I've read much more about that. Um, and this really went into how they get the provocateur, <laughs> you know, the, the, uh, the William O'Neill character, how the FBI recruited him mm. and how he gets involved. And then, you know, then he's in. Maybe he doesn't know what was gonna happen. So I liked having that be covered. Yeah, yeah, I, I thought all that was interesting. Um, very interesting. I hope that it was, you know, I, I don't know very much about that particular history either. And I certainly hope that it was uh, fairly accurate. Uh, continuing with the theme of uh, representation, uh, art history, and everything. Did you? Did are you in the superhero movies? Have you watched uh, Black Panther? Did you watch any? I did movies? watch it. I, okay. I'm not really into them. I just I I loved that it got made, but it it and it was beautiful, just mm. beautiful. Now there was a lot of. Uh, you know, I, I said before that I don't catch a lot of these references of what people are talking about, but I certainly did catch a lot that were intentionally placed in the Black Panther movie, the the, the use of the black, red, and green uh, as they were walking around different locations and things like that. So that I could see a lot of representation going on there. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so you have uh, some, some, are you still doing uh, more art history? Are you still, uh, not art history, but are you still making more portraits and paintings and collages and? Uh, uh, Only <laughs> these stitched fabric things I'm doing. Okay. okay. Uh, I did. I, this writing takes a long time when it's a book like this yeah. because I just have to read everything. It's just deep. I go really deep. It's just it's the art historian curse, you know. Yeah. <laughs> love to write a popular book to sit down and, but it, it takes years, and I just don't think I'm gonna do another one. But I I do write. I um am, I wrote a chapter to be included in a, a, actually call it an essay, to be included in a book on Angela Davis, I'm really looking forward to seeing. And I, in that I looked at, at representation of Angela Davis in the newspaper. And I was really interested in uh, her relationship via her job at UCLA with Ronald Reagan. I got way off into, to, that history but I, that was december so i took a month off and hammered that out we'll see you know that when that book ever comes out one of them is still giving speeches right I, well i know angela davis is there's another one who's still giving speeches today it's not it's not cleaver um, um possibly erica huggins and she's still alive and lives in oakland uh, that doesn't sound familiar i used to watch her all the time I don't know. I, I don't want to belabor that point. There's someone out there who's still kind of really, really, really active. And I appreciate that. I'd like to actually get um, Angela Davis on the show one day. I mean, she's, I'm sure she's way too big time for me, but, but I'd like to have her on sometime, you know, you know, just when, I, when I was at Western, I did a, a, a TV show. It was called 15 minutes with Joanne Morgan, <laughs> just little short snippets. And it was mainly, um, um, people in the community, 
right? So it was our it was our college channel, and I could get people to come on and fifteen minutes quickly in and out. But so I had this already going, this little show, and I invited Emory Douglas to come to campus. This was when I was working on, you know, early, early in the research. And I got him on and interviewed him for an hour and really didn't know it, hardly anything at that time. I, maybe something, but, you know, nowhere as, as much. So sometimes when you have a podcast, you know, people, it's a, people will come on, you know, if you know where they are and how to contact them. Like, yeah. I Douglas at home. All right. Well, listen. I'll I'll text you after this, and we'll, maybe you could get him to come on my show. Here was my um, secret, um, although I didn't know it at the time. But okay. it's a secret. I'd met him at where he was speaking, and we'd exchanged addresses, and so I, I was I didn't know how to contact him, and I'd invited him, and uh, gave him a range of dates, and he said he could come December. Let's see, fourth Friday, December fourth. Well, um, great. We worked it out, and I, you know, paid for transportation, put him up overnight, and well, he could only stay overnight. And the reason was he wanted to go to Chicago just on on the anniversary of Fred Hampton's death for a memorial. So I I paid his way. <laughs> it turned out to go to something he really wanted to do, and then I got him. On campus. Well, I'll keep that in mind. I'll try to find something in Connecticut that these people want to come to, and then I'll, maybe I'll, I'll get yeah. them out there. <laughs> okay, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> so, thank you so much. Um, I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much thank for coming you. on Captain Captain Hunter's podcast. Uh, enjoy your emeritus status. Enjoy your. Uh, uh, I keep wanting to call them quilts. I know that they're not quilts. It's okay. <laughs> I call them comforters, though. Okay. They're, they're, they're yeah. So just enjoy what you're doing. I mean, you, you, you've given a lot of contribution. You've given us a lot, a book that that's going to live for, forever. And, uh, and, and certainly something I that it, uh, I want students to have it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I appreciate the fact that you, uh, you know, really focused on in particular black women, uh, because I have a daughter as well. And I, I, I am very disturbed when I look into history books. And when I put this up, I'm going to, um, uh, put an image that was from Disney from the 1950s, I believe, of a little pretty little blonde girl and she's being taken care of by this little black, ugly looking uh, unicorn kind of thing. And this is what Disney images put out. I believe it was the 19, either 40s or 50s. This was the images that they put out at that particular time. And then we fast forward to today to 2021. Well, well let me let, let's end off with this. We've come a long way, obviously, as, as what I'm saying. We've come a long way. We've got we had a Disney princess. Uh, Black Disney Princess, the prison, the Princess and the Frog. You probably didn't watch that. I mean, I watched it with my kids. <laughs> my daughter's now thirty-one, so yeah, yeah. no more princess movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, for but you know, growing up, uh, you and I only watched you know, little you know white girls, uh, you know, the Snow White and Cinderella and all that. So now we had we had all these different Disney princesses. You know, uh, um, Jasmine from Aladdin. And, yeah. Right. Right. All these different people of color. So, so talk to us about about the representation. How far we've come to twenty twenty one. If we'll just end off on that. Well, um, I, I, we, my, my husband and I pay a lot of attention to current events without going into too much detail, especially this year. 
So he'll have the TV on in the next room, and I have this big studio I work in. I don't really watch it. It's just like a radio in the background. And we watch mainly MSNBC. Sometimes CNN is on. Um, and it seems like half the women, or well, half the people are African-American on those shows now, men and women. I mean, there's just no, and, and in a, a, you know, hosting them, not just come on once in a while. It, Think of, um, well, look back any anything from the, the 60s. I sometimes see an old Johnny Carson show, and he is such a sexist. Holy cow. <laughs> oh, just embarrassing. So, so the sexism of misogyny, I guess. Would be. And then flash forward to today, and you turn on TV, and you're likely to see it, you know, a person of color. Women, particularly women, it seems like more even women than men. But it, you grow up seeing, you know, there's there, there's a range now. I don't know that uh, how many kids grow up watching MSNBC though, so I, I can't speak to that. But I definitely I saw I, I don't know the lady's name, but I turned on. I don't really watch MSNBC. I do watch CNN from time to time. And occasionally, I just kind of flip around. Even Fox News sometimes. I can stand that for like five minutes. And I'm like, oh, okay, here are the lies again. So I can't listen to that. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, so I, I did turn on MSNBC and there was this a black woman I'd never seen before. I'm like, who the heck is this? You know, so so I definitely agree with you. We've come so far. And that was my point is that we've gone from the 1950s and 60s to the 70s and obviously till today where we're seeing more and more. I mean, almost every commercial now is some interracial oh. couple. Oh, that's <laughs> it's good. I don't, I don't know the last time I've seen, seen a couple that wasn't interracial. <laughs> right. It, it's it, it's only jarring because I look for stuff like that. Right, right, right. <laughs> and it's out of context completely, but yeah, yeah. God love them. Yeah, well, I mean, this is the kind of, I think that it's, we're making we're making racists mad, but I think that this type of uh, society we wanted, where we're trying to be colorblind, trying to be more inclusive, and that's what we wanted. So it's I don't know. It's it is what it is. So <laughs> and getting better and getting better, except for when January sixth, when they want to take over the Capitol. So yeah. um, anyway, so we'll end off there. Thank you so much for coming on Captain Hunter's podcast. We really had a great time talking to you. And uh, maybe we're going to have you back on again when you got in some more information to share with us. I okay. Always happy. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care.